Well, the point of this evening's meditation is very simple. For us to marvel upon the beauty of what Christ has accomplished for his people by his death. Jesus died. That's what we've gathered to remember tonight. He died as a convicted criminal on a Roman cross on a Friday afternoon in the first century on a dungy hill outside of Jerusalem. Those are the facts. But what was Jesus actually doing on that cross? What was the divine son of God actually accomplishing by giving himself over to be executed upon that tree on that day? The work of Christ upon the cross is so multifaceted that it it can't be captured in a single word or summarized by one single formula. What Christ did on the cross is so massive and the window into the heart of God so big that no single explanation or description can tell the whole story. Like a multifaceted diamond, we'll spend eternity turning Christ's work over in our hands. And every time that we do, another facet will consume our attention and rouse our affection. Its riches are truly inexhaustible. So instead of trying to ponder all of those riches at once tonight, I want us to look at one Bible verse and stare at just one of the accomplishments of Christ's work on the cross for his people. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it on the screens behind me or on page 15 of that worship guide that you got on your way in. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' death accomplished for his people. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Praise God, brothers and sisters. King Jesus secures his people. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. That's what our verse is revealing to us tonight. His death reconciles us and his life seals our salvation. Those are the two glorious realities of Christ's work that I want us to reflect upon tonight. One, we have been reconciled. And two, we will be saved. Number one, we have been reconciled. So Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the most intensely theological books we have in the Bible. It pro- provides perhaps a, the most systematic presentation of the gospel in the scriptures. If you haven't read it and you want to think more about what makes Good Friday so good, then I encourage you to read the book of Romans. And Paul's main objective in the letter is to show Christians in Rome, the the nature of the gospel and its implications for us individually and corporately with with other believers. In the letter, Paul basically lays out uh, the anatomy of salvation, giving both the wide lens story of God's work and history to restore fallen creation, and then the narrow lens story of how God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And our verse comes in one of those places where Paul is narrowing the lens of of the letter to, to focus on the work of Christ on the cross. 
He takes that diamond of the atonement and he holds it up in front of our face, showing us all of its multifaceted riches. And in the context of chapter 5, he's, he's showing us how Christ's work on the cross justifies the sinner. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul starts off the chapter by, by saying that we've been justified by faith. And then he bookends that thought in verse 9 when he says that it's the blood of Christ that justifies us. So justification is, is legal law court language, picturing the believer receiving the righteousness of Christ by faith and being declared righteous by God the judge. And this idea of justification dominates the letter of Romans, and especially chapter 5. But in verse 10, on our verse tonight, Paul switches from talking about justification to talking about how the cross reconciles us to God. And that switch from justification to reconciliation language is super important because it marks a shift in Paul's thought. He's turning that diamond of the atonement ever so slightly in his hand. And as he does, the light hits it in a new angle, and bam, we have something different and new to marvel at. The language of reconciliation, it comes from the world of, of personal relationships. To reconcile means to bring together or make peace between two estranged and hostile parties. Paul actually already introduced this idea back in verse 1 when he stated in that, at the start of the chapter that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul is gathering together the main pieces of verses 1 to 8 to reiterate and to expand the central point of the section of this letter. That the certainty of our hope in Christ is our justification and our reconciliation, both of which Christ achieved on the cross. And in verse 10, the focus is specifically on this idea of reconciliation, on Christ restoring our communion, our friendship with God through the cross. Now, why this need for reconciliation? Why this need for us and God to be reconciled? Well, because in our sin, we are hostile toward God. We declare war on him. It makes us his natural-born enemies, morally opposed to him and to his law. And we know Paul is talking about a moral enmity on our part because of, of how else he describes us throughout the chapter. So in verse 6, look at what he calls us there. He calls us weak and ungodly. And then again in verse 8, he identifies us as sinners, weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. That's what our moral rebellion against God makes us. And now, apart from Christ, God stands hostile to us. Our sin disqualifies us from standing in his presence and puts us squarely in the crosshairs of his holy wrath which Paul's already made crystal clear for us elsewhere in the letter in places like Romans 1, 18, or, or chapter 2, verse 5. So at the core of this enmity is, is our sin against God and God's wrath against us. And this is why we so desperately need this work of reconciliation. 
Because you and I, outside of Christ, we are not friends with God. And God is not friends with us. And the only hope we have of becoming his friend is if God initiates it. God has to be the one to make the first move. We are too enslaved in our sin. We're too entrenched in our enmity to initiate that cosmic peace treaty it takes to reconcile with the creator of the universe. But brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that he makes the first move. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's timing here is everything. He didn't wait for us to try and reconcile ourselves to him. He didn't wait for us to to try and make ourselves righteous before he made his move for us in Christ. No, the verse says God initiated his peacemaking plan to reconcile us when? While we were still waging war on him. While we were still his enemies. And how does he execute this plan? Through the death of his son. It took Christ's blood for God's peace treaty to take effect. His death bulldozed the wall of hostility and made a way for our peace. And the results were perpetual peace between us and the one that we had declared war on. Instead of pouring out his wrath on us, God reconciled us. He made us friends, removing the hostility from our hearts and replacing it with new affections for him. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was hard at work, obliterating our hatred of God, restoring and regaining on that tree in Golgotha what we lost back at a tree in the garden. But this begs a question, doesn't it? Why did our reconciliation require Christ's death? Because only the Son of God, only the Son of God could pay the price of sin's penalty. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But Christ experienced that death for us. He bore the wrath of God in our place while we were still God's enemies. You see, every sin we've committed against this infinitely good and eternal God is itself an infinite offense, which means that its penalty can never be exhausted. And this is why Jesus had to die. Because only in the person of Christ, the one who knew no sin, could the infinite penalty of our treason finally be satisfied and the problem of our sin fully and completely and finally dealt with. This is what makes Good Friday so good for bad people like us. Christ spilled his blood to reconcile us to God. And now he calls us to receive that reconciliation through repentance and faith, to lay down our arms of war 
and enjoy the peace and the fellowship and the friendship of God. You know, earlier this week, I came across the story of Hiro Onoda, a second lieutenant in the Japanese Imperial Army during the Second World War. On December 26, 1944, his commanding officer sent him deep into the jungles of the Philippine island of Lebang and ordered him to stand and fight as long as it took. Word never reached him a few months later when the war ended. And he remained at his jungle post for another 30 years, refusing to believe that World War II was over. He was caught in a time war. He fought an imaginary war that no longer existed. He lived in hiding, living on bananas and coconuts, and sometimes even killed villagers he believed were his enemies. And over those 30 years, the Filipino government tried everything they, they could to get Hero to come out of hiding. They dropped leaflets into the jungle asking him to come out. They brought loudspeakers in and, and shouted to him, to him about the war's end. They even brought his own brother in to stand at the microphone and beg him to give up. But Hero never believed it. He thought it was all a trick just to get him to surrender. And he fought on until 1974, when the Japanese government finally sent in his old commanding officer to order Hiro to stand down. And only then did he give up. For 30 years, Hiro was shut out to the good news, the good news that peace had been won, that the war was over. He spent his life hiding in jungles, giving himself to a lost cause, refusing to accept the reality that the war really was over. Friends, doesn't that far too often describe us? We continue to, to live at war with God. When 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ signed that peace treaty to end that war with his own blood. Instead of enjoying the war's end and celebrating it, we choose to persist in our sin and unbelief. Even those of us in Christ can, can live like this when we fail to live out the realities of Christ's peacemaking work. Thinking that we've still got work to do on our end. That we've got to earn God's favor or approval. Friends, why why keep fighting a war that Christ died to put an end to? What jungles of, of unbelief are you still hiding in? In what ways are you still living at war with God? King Jesus would call you to lay down your weapons. Now, Jesus Christ laid down his life so that we might be reconciled to God. But that's not where his work ended. He picked it back up again so that we might live with him forever. And that brings us to the final thing that this verse would have us meditate on. Point number two, much more shortly, we will be saved. We will be saved. So the if-then construction of the verse and the transition that, that Paul's thought 
the transition in Paul's thought marked by that phrase, how much more there in verse 10. It signals that he's moving in his argument from the major to the minor. If God has already done the most difficult thing, reconciling his enemies to himself through the death of his son, then how much more can we now expect him to accomplish the easier thing, saving us from the wrath to come in the final judgment? If God has already accomplished peace for us by the blood of Christ, then we can depend on him to keep that peace for all eternity. That's what Paul is arguing in the back half of this verse. And how do we know that that Paul's talking about that final end-time judgment here? Well, because he switches to the future tense in the back half of the verse. And we see the same construction in verse 9 where, where Paul actually supplies the thing that we will be saved from. In verse 9, it's our justification that will save us from God's coming wrath. Now it's this reconciliation that we've been talking about. Our reconciliation then seals the security of our future hope, working in tandem with our justification. Because Christ has already completed the work of of reconciling us to the Father on the cross, then we can surely expect that work of reconciliation to hold and save us in the future when God pours out his wrath on those who still declare war on him. In other words, there's no expiration date on that peace treaty that Christ established with us on the cross. There's no amendment coming to it. There's no end to that peace. And what is it? What is the means by which God is going to uh, that he's going to accomplish this for us? How do we know that that peace will endure? Again, it's Christ. But instead of his death, now Paul shifts to his life, which is a clear reference to Christ's resurrection. So here we're seeing the inseparable nature of Christ's death and his resurrection. Both are necessary for affecting our salvation. We need both to be saved. But how does the life of Christ save us from God's final wrath against sin? Well, the first reason that Paul gives in this verse is is that God has accomplished reconciliation for us through Christ's death. And he will not condemn those that he's reconciled. And the second reason is that Christ died, that he was raised from the dead, and that he now lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. That's where Paul's going to take us later in the letter in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friends, because Jesus lives, we will be secure for all eternity from the wrath of God. There's not one drop left in that cup of his wrath for us to drink. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's a friendship that lasts forever. And now we can confidently await his return. 
looking forward to the coming of the very judge who has already offered up himself to the judgment of God in our place and removed the whole penalty of our sin as far as the east is from the west. This is why Paul says in the very next verse that we ought to rejoice in God. We rejoice in God because our war with him is over. We once were God's enemies, but now by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. Never to be cast out of his presence. Never to be separated from the Father's love. Always to be welcomed at his table. Always to enjoy the life Christ has secured for us. For the Son has reconciled us to his Father. And he will surely save us when he returns. For his work is sufficient to secure us forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for our Savior. We praise you for the work that he accomplished for us on that cross. We praise you for the friendship and the reconciliation and the peace that now exists between you and us, those who were formerly your enemies, sinners, weak, ungodly, undeserving. God, we pray that you would you would deepen our affection for the king, that you would raise our hearts towards him, that you would weaken sin's hold on us, and that we would live in the peace that he has secured for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.